Welcome to the Connect Church Podcast. Our mission at Connect Church is to help people find and follow Jesus. For more information on who we are and how we're doing just that, visit myconnectchurch.cc. Now, let's jump into this week's message from Pastor Blaine. So 1 Thessalonians, uh, give you just a real quick kind of, I think it's important to see not only what does God want us, I think really Bible interpretation is so important and context is important. And we have to really remember that the Bible was not, it was written to the people at the church at Thessalonica. And so how they would have interpreted it and what, how they were processing it really does matter. We don't just get to approach scripture and interpret it in our own culture and our own times alone. We have to we have to filter it through what God was saying to them as well. And so the church at Thessalonica was started on, on Paul's second missionary journey. The first trip was a, well, relatively short missionary journey. The second one started out similar where he was going back to, to follow up on these first converts. And, and then it exploded and went much further west. He travels through Asia Minor, but Scripture is very clear that while he was traveling through Asia Minor, the Holy Spirit did not give him permission uh, to, to, to preach through Asia Minor. We just finished the seven churches of uh, Revelation. All of those are found in Asia Minor. Those weren't actually preached in until the third missionary journey. So Paul went far north and right really across the boundary of Asia Minor on this second trip, and he ended up into a, a really the furthest city in Asia Minor away from Jerusalem called Troas. And Troas was right on the Aegean Sea. And one night he was praying about what to do next and where to go next. And he had a vision from, uh, of, a, of a man from Macedonia, which was right across from the Aegean Sea, looking at Paul and saying, come over here and preach to us. And he took that as a vision from God that the Macedonians were wanting the gospel to come uh, to them. And so uh, he gets on a boat, he and Silas. Uh, Silas is uh, his, his partner for his second missionary trip. They actually, going through Lystra, had picked up Timothy too. Timothy was really green when it comes to preaching and evangelizing. And so they are mentoring Timothy along the way. So they get on a boat and they go across the Aegean Sea and they uh, begin to make their way around, down. They, they end up coming to uh, Thessalonica. You remember the first place they went was Philippi. Philippi was named after Philip of Macedon, who was Alexander the Great's daddy, and this was become the capital city of, uh, of uh, Macedonia. And uh, while he was at Philippi, you remember he, was, uh, he, he went hoping to find a place of prayer, and he ended up finding Lydia, who was a seller of purple. Remember where she was from? Thyatira. And so uh, he, he ends up engaging with her, and she hears the gospel, and she gives herself away to it, and all of her family, and they're baptized, and, and she invites them into their home to stay for a while. And while they're there, they start finding these places of prayer. And at one time, they, they went to this place of prayer, and this little slave girl is following after behind them and agitating them quite heavily and you know bringing a lot of spotlight to them. And, and I, I don't know if it's right or not. Well, I think it's right to cast out demons. Uh, but Paul, the reason that he cast out her demon is because she was so aggravating to him. 
Uh, and so she's following behind. She's a fortune teller, little slave girl that uh, people are making a lot of money from. And he finally just gets tired of it and turns around and commands the demon to go out of her. And her owners are so angry. They put together this mob riot against Paul and Silas. And they end up taking them, throwing them into, um, they get flogged and beaten and thrown into prison. You remember this is in Acts chapter 16. Well, that night, there's an earthquake. Paul and Silas are set free, but they didn't go anywhere, which led to the conversion of the Philippian jailer and all of his family. So this church in Philippi is really beginning to experience a pretty good explosion in an early church. Well, from that, Paul and, and Silas get into some trouble, and they start going back down south. They end up in Thessalonica. It's the next largest city. It's about 100 miles away from Philippi. I know you don't care about this, but I just, it's better. I can just see it. I can just see it. I can sense it, begin to connect with the emotion of it. They get into Thessalonica and they're having some pretty good ministry there. They go to the synagogue and they're preaching. Yeah, this is in Acts chapter 17. In fact, I, I pulled out just a verse there. It's in uh, Acts 17, verse 4. It says, And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. And so this church uh, in Thessalonica, as Paul is establishing it, uh, there are people in the synagogues. They are God-fearing, but they're not Christians. But Paul connects the dots for them. They say yes. There are other devout Greeks, which just simply means that they are pagans. They honor God, but not this God. They are, they are religious. They are spiritual, but they're not Christian. And they're not Jewish. Uh, they are very much Greek or Roman. And so they hear the gospel of Christ. And so they come into the church as well. And, uh, and then also there was a lot of, of leading women, of uh, very strong business uh, women. Uh, I think that's what the word would be translated when it says leading uh, women, not, not necessarily you know, in a negative way, but in a very positive way. It's, it is an odd turn of phrase, except to say that the gospel is not chauvinistic. The gospel was the first, it's the first faith that ever set women free to be a part of it. Uh, and so anytime somebody starts, you know, talking about how negative the scripture is and how egocentric it is or, or man-centered it is, it's just not true. It sets, it sets everyone free. So remember, this is a church that at its foundation, and churches haven't really spread. The, the gospel is new to everyone by this time. I mean, they've not really heard of Jesus at all. But this church in Thessalonica is made up of very religious Jews, not very religious Gentile pagans, and also a large subset of their culture that really had no uh, influence in the culture at at all. It's an odd, diverse church. But while Paul is there, news of him turning the world upside down reaches Thessalonica too, and he starts getting into some trouble. And before they can arrest him, he and Silas and, uh, and Timothy kind of make their way away. But the house they were staying in was owned by a man named Jason. And Jason was uh, actually brought out into the street and berated and told him that he couldn't partner with these people. And they, you know, they end up having to pay, it was not a ransom, but it's kind of a, a fine or a fee just so he could be set free. But at that time, Paul and Silas had all, and Timothy had already fled down 40 miles to another city named Berea. 
Uh, all of this makes sense in a few moments because it's very important for you to know the, the chronology of these events. When they get to Berea, the, the, the mean, nasty Jews of Thessalonica found out that Paul was preaching in Berea and they made the 40-mile trek to just get in their face again and say, hey, these guys are bad guys. But Berea, the, the Jews in Berea weren't like the Jews in Thessalonica. And so while they did create havoc there, these Jews from Thessalonica, uh, you know, Paul and Barnabas, uh, ended up kind of getting away. Paul went on to Athens and he left Silas and I think I said Barnabas, but Silas and Timothy in Berea for a while. And it seems that while they were left in Berea for some time, uh, they were still ministering up to the new believers at Thessalonica from Berea. So they were continuing to influence them, though at, a, at, a, at an inconvenient distance. Eventually, Paul asks Silas and Timothy to join him in Athens. When they get to Athens, Paul says, how things been going? Timothy says, well, <laughs> they've been going pretty good, but we have some questions. And uh, process that, and Paul says, you need to go back to Thessalonica and teach those people that new church up there. Timothy goes all the way back to Thessalonica and, and continues to teach them week after week after week, most likely day by day. Paul goes on to Corinth. When he gets in Corinth and he's beginning to, to build that church, uh, he calls for Timothy to come and give him a report on what's going on in Thessalonica. Well, while Paul is hearing from Timothy, Timothy is saying, man, Paul, listen, they are all messed up. Most of them are mad at you. They, everybody in the city hates them, and, uh, and they're under a lot of attack, and, and they're questioning everything that you taught, and they're questioning you as well. Uh, and I'm paraphrasing, of course, but there must have been some dissension among the church at Thessalonica because Paul like infused them with hope, and then he walked away, and he ran by the night. And, uh, and then when he sent back people, he sent back representatives, not himself. And so, you know, Paul talks a big game, but, you know, and they start questioning Jesus. They start questioning transformation. They start questioning the second coming of Christ. They don't know what that means. They, they, they thought that, and we'll get to this later, but they thought that when a man dies, if he was a Christian, he still just dies that you actually have to be alive when Jesus comes back to go to heaven. And so there was a lots of these very divisive things, and some had become loyal to Timothy, and some had trying to stay loyal to Paul, and then there was other preachers, itinerant preachers around. So this church, though it was very, very young, I mean only months old, and they were dealing with a lot of problems inside and lots of problems outside. And so while Paul was starting the church at Corinth, he wrote the letter back to the church at Thessalonica. And here is uh, what he says. He says in verse 1, Paul, Silvanus, this is uh, Silas in Latin. Uh, he's not writing to Hebrews, he's writing to Greeks. And, uh, and so he uses his, uh, his Roman, his uh, Latinized, Romanized name. Uh, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. He says, we give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. 
So there are a lot of lessons for us to learn through this. I think it's an interesting that as Paul is ministering and he's passionate to, to reach the nations with the gospel, that from time to time, the Holy Spirit prevents him. There was times that he wanted to go back to Thessalonica. Acts tells us two different times that Paul tried to get back to Thessalonica and the Holy Spirit prevented him from that. He actually tells them this later uh, in this letter. There were times that he wanted to preach to Asia Minor. Maybe he, he saw this developing in these churches, but, but the Holy Spirit forbid him. And so sometimes in ministry, there are obstacles. And those obstacles by, by prayer creates a passion. That passion oftentimes creates obstacles. And when we go through obstacles, there's not proof that there's a wall there. It means we continue to persevere and there may be persecution. Sometimes Satan uses persecution and it produces growth in the life of the church. I personally believe that a time of persecution is coming. I don't think it's going to be as easy to be sold out to Jesus Christ as it has been for us before. But while we don't want persecution, persecution has always produced growth. And that's what we see in the book of Acts. And that's what we see as Paul is referring to these letters, that there's worse things than being persecuted. The persecuted church was always the strongest Church. It may not have been the biggest, but it was always the strongest. And over and over, we're watching and we're listening as, as Paul is learning some of these very uh, powerful, powerful lessons. Another thing that I am sort of convicted of is that it doesn't take a long time to start a church when you use the power of the Holy Spirit and the gospel of Jesus Christ. Sometimes I think we just, we are so slow to act because we're waiting for these powerful moments. But I mean, Paul goes into a city and just starts declaring Jesus and people are already ready. He was, he was passionate. He was prayed up. He was bought in. He was sacrificing. He was modeling what Christ was doing in his ministry. And so when Paul begins to preach, people are already, he, Paul goes to the, to the river to pray and he's leading people to Christ. Think about this. You say, well, that's yeah, the apostle Paul. Yeah, but Jesus called us to do the exact same thing he called Paul to do. I think the Lord would prevent us from certain things. I think the Lord would open doors for us in certain areas. But I think that if we're truly noticing what's going on around us, if we're truly paying attention and we're dedicated to do what the Spirit asks us to do, that when we speak, people would respond. I mean, within a matter of the, the Acts says that Paul preached in the synagogue for three weeks. Three weeks, there's a church established. And yet, most of the time today, it's like we pray for years and years and years, and we try to plant a church. It takes years and years and years and millions and millions of dollars of money because we're not trusting in the power of the word. We're trying to impress people. We're trying to build an empire, a name for ourselves, or a personality. When what we should be doing is just, just simple church, just people loving people and helping brokenness. That's what a church is supposed to do. I think we get so distracted by our programming and so distracted by the things we, are, we taught ourselves or the things we've inherited that we can't just think for ourselves and just, it's the power of the gospel. I think the church should be reminded of the power of the gospel. Not the church, the church. As we go, as we work, as we live, as we cut our grass, as we shop for groceries, it's the power of the gospel that transforms people's lives. The, second, the next, maybe third or fourth lesson through here is, is that Satan still opposes the gospel. And so that we don't have to deal with him, we don't deal with the gospel at all. 
Let me say, so when, when Satan opposes the gospel, he often uses persecution. The persecution doesn't work. Persecution only strengthens the church. So when persecution occurs, the church explodes. But when the church explodes, the minority little remnant group becomes a majority group. And you know what the majority always wants to do? Organize. And when the church organizes and it streamlines, it becomes political. And when it becomes political, it becomes the enemy of the church. But God always has a remnant. So this is what I would encourage us. We shouldn't be afraid of persecution. What we should be afraid of is organizing in such a way that we organize the gospel completely out of what we're trying to accomplish, even as individuals. And sometimes as individuals, the church becomes our organization that we belong to, but we're not doing the work of the gospel as individuals. Listen, the church can't do the work that the people don't do. It makes sense? All right, let's get back to 1 Thessalonians. So Paul writes this letter to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and Jesus Christ. It's interesting that he writes it this way. He doesn't write this to any other church quite in this, in this order. Now, try to, I think Paul, what Paul's trying to do is he's trying to drive home that he's aware of the diversity, and they have become very, very aware of the diversity. Typically, Paul would write to those in Christ in the city of or of the city of. Uh, and then say the, you know, the church at Colossae, for instance, he would say, you know, to, in fact, he did say uh, to those, uh, to, the, to the church of uh, Colossae, uh, those in Christ to the church at Colossae. This is backward, but what he's trying to do is he's trying to unite them together to remind them, those who, who know who Jesus is and his Jewish roots, those who do not know Jesus is because of their Gentile roots, he's putting them in together. God the Father, they already were worshiping God. And so you need to know that he is God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He's throwing them together. You, are, you know Jesus because you know the Father. They are in Christ because they are in God. Not just a God, but the God, the Father. Paul doesn't do this anywhere else in his writing, ever. Uh, but he knows that they are fractured and they are divided uh, to some degree regarding who Paul is as well. But he's trying to put them into one little grouping together. So Paul recognizes unity, the unity, importance of the unity of the church. And I want you to remember, I want you to write this down even if you need to, because it is so important, and I'm afraid in a series like this, it will be forgotten. Nothing destroys a Christian's growth and influence worse or faster than disunity. Nothing will destroy a Christian or a church faster or more completely than disunity. When, when a church begins to fracture away into opinionated groups, it becomes very dangerous to itself. Uh, it begins to create enemies. It begins to create uh, uh, not just cliques, because sometimes cliques are, are well, it's always negative, but, but relationships are important. But when those relationships are built around their opinions, they become very polarizing and dangerous. And Paul knows that, and that is what is happening at the church at Thessalonica. They become very polarized away from each other in their preferences and what they think and how they feel. 
And so we need to, uh, uh, what it does is it makes us begin to distrust, begins to push us away from other people. We relate a lot less. We think people are trying to get something from us or make us think or feel a certain way or they may talk about us behind our back. And so how many, uh, by the way, if, if those, of those of you who've been in church for very long, how many of us have not been hurt in some way by someone in the church? Right? I mean, if you're going to be around people very long, people are going to hurt you. And so one of the ways that I can avoid being hurt is I can just stay away from people. And so what it has done, what this has done in our culture is it's created a content-driven church. What COVID has done for many has created content-driven churches, whereas the thing to do is just to gain more content. You know, you get late, you leave early, and you don't really relate at all with anybody. And, and it's dangerous to the unity that God is trying to develop in a church because there is nothing that causes and stimulates growth and influence in the life of a Christian more than unity with the believers. And so this is the thing that Satan is trying to do. He's trying to take the culture that we're in and drive us away from each other and to drive wedges against each other because if he can do that the church has lost all of its growth its power and its influence so important so paul is driving them together there is no subs content even correct content truth is no substitute for unity so i just say as I mean, I'm, I'm preaching. I might as well go ahead and preach for a second. I, I, don't know how to, I don't know how to say this without it sounding cliche, but there's not really, I mean, the only thing that I want is I want things for, I know what the power of the gospel can do in families and marriages and parenting and money. And, uh, you know, I, I, know what the, I know what the power of the gospel can accomplish. And I want that for you. And I know what the scripture says must take place for us to have that. And almost all of those things are because we're in a relationship with him, we get to be in a relationship with each other. But if we're fearful or it's awkward or we have social issues that keep us from each other, well, it doesn't matter what kind of relationship we have with God. It's muted because it can't be built on without each other. That's why the one another's are so important. So, whatever excuse, whatever justification that you currently use that drives you away from people, whatever pain, whatever fear, whatever personality it is that drives you or keeps you away from people, you need to take it to the Lord. Because it's wrecking you in ways that you may not even be aware. I do believe, I do believe that it's partially satanic persecution of the church. That's keeping us from each other, keeping us relating. We're too busy. We don't have time. My life's more important. Now, all these sorts of things that we tell ourselves. But we have to make some decisions that open us up to each other. Now, my takeaway from that is that we need to learn to risk and we need to learn to relate. And as we build unity, we grow spiritually. This is so important for us. As we build unity... We grow spiritually. And that's what, my, that's what my hope is for our church, is for us to grow spiritually. But the recipe is heavy on unity. 
And so without that, we can want all day long. So as we, as attending is important, attending is important. In fact, it's, it's necessary. Attending is necessary because that's where the relationships are. But relating is more important than attending. And yes, a preacher just said that. Relating is the point of attending, not content. Attending is personal. Relating is communal. And we're called to be communal. So let me encourage you. Some sitting among some of you, or maybe I shouldn't have said it that way, sitting among, of you, among you are some of the greatest people I know. I love this church. And I, and I know, I know who is sitting here for the most part. And I'm telling you, they're the greatest people I know. I would not, uh, I'm going to say a couple of strong statements. So, you know, try to filter that. I don't want to pastor a church filled with people I don't know. I won't pastor a church that outgrows the ability to relate to the people that you're trying to pastor. That's the whole point of pastoring. I, I just won't. I also want to say that if you feel that I'm not available, then you need to talk to me about it because that's my worst fear is, is not being able to have relationships with people. And, and that's what I crave. And that's what I crave for you as well with each other. And so knowing what I know about each one of you, I, I know many of you, and because of that, I want you to know each other. I, I, I want you to love each other. I want you to serve together. I don't have to know about it. I certainly don't want to do it as a product of a program that the church is running. I just, I just feel like a church ought to be very organic. I just want you to know each other. I hear some of you talking from time to time, and I'm like, oh, man, you should meet so-and-so. I mean, they're sitting in the same room together. And, and if we could take, like, spiritual gifts and partner them with spiritual gifts and personalities to personalities and putting those things in the same room. Listen, the power of the Holy Spirit is here when we're together collectively. But it's no less powerful out there when we're together collectively. I, I, it's, it's a little preachy, but I think about the times I'm at Walmart where I'm introducing people who go to church with people who go to church together. Let me encourage you, spend time with each other. Get to know each other. It's so important. And it will, it will crush disunity. All right, let's move on. So Paul again puts them on the same page with this statement. He tells them grace and peace. Now that may just, you might read by that really, really quick, but Paul does this in churches that are diverse. Because grace is a Greek word, it's charis. Grace and peace, that's a Hebrew word, shalom. So he takes these Greek greeting and with a Hebrew greeting, he puts them in the same greeting and says, grace and, and Greece and, and, and uh, peace in Hebrew to you all. I love, I love that, often overlooked. There was some concern from the church that Paul didn't love them much anymore, or didn't, maybe never did. Maybe he was just checking boxes. So... Maybe he left too quick. Maybe he sent the wrong representative. Maybe, maybe young Timothy wasn't quite strong enough to tell them that they were wrong about certain things. And let me tell you, the best time to ever fix conflict is when you first know about it. And if Timothy wasn't strong enough to handle some of that, you know, it starts getting out of hand. And before long, Paul's, uh, Timothy is finding Paul to, to tattle. Uh, so anyway, that's what Paul is saying is that you need to know I'm investing in you in ways that you can't 
see. But I am investing and you are important. In fact, every time I pray, I mention you in my prayers. It's very important for you to know that. Now I'm spending the rest of my time in just a few minutes on verse three, and that's where we'll close today. If you are spiritually healthy, these three things are going to be evident in your life. If you are spiritually healthy, here are the three things that Paul says. A good parallel to this, well, let's just read it again in verse 3. Remembering before our God and Father your work of faith, labor of love, and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Here's the parallel. We just read it. Revelation chapter 2, verse 2, when Jesus looks at the church at Ephesus and said, I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. Paul affirms these same three things here in this very young church. He talks about the work of faith. Now, it's important for you not to misunderstand what Paul is saying here. The word work is singular. He is not in conflict with James at all here. What he is saying is the, it's the work of faith. It's faith's work, not works of faith, not things that you do. It's transformation of your character. That's what faith does. It transforms us. And so I give thanks to God that I can recognize spiritual transformation in your life. That is the work of faith. And that's the first thing that I would say that's, that's evident in the life of every believer is that there's a transformed way of living, transformed way of speaking, because it's one transformation. And that's what Paul is saying. This isn't, this isn't a, a box that you check that says, hey, I prayed a prayer or I have belief in my mind. You know, this faith is not intellectual. And if we're not careful, we're going to start thinking. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of fearful of it, that we're going to start thinking that faith is only intellectual. It's a series of beliefs or of theology that we believe. And because we believe these things are true, we are saved. But what Paul says is he's thankful for the transforming work of faith in their life because it's evident in the way they live every day. Not the things that they do, but the motivation for doing these things. It's not a one-moment prayer or a one-moment baptism or a one-moment Bible study. It is a daily choice to live in the power of the transformation of Jesus Christ. That's what Paul is saying here. That's the work of faith. It's a daily sacrifice, a daily cross that they pick up and they're living in that in the midst of hostility, by the way. I know it's, these words are impregnated with meaning that oftentimes the English just misses. And so Paul is talking about, it is obvious to me, and I'm thankful to God that it is obvious to me by the, by the reports that I hear that you are continually giving yourself away to Jesus Christ and it's proof by how I see you and hear about you conducting your everyday life. It's the same source. Jesus didn't call people to say a prayer. He called them to follow him, right? And if we turn our faith into just an intellectual faith, I think we miss the point of faith. Faith is active daily. Faith isn't a choice we make. It's the proof. They said, Jesus said, you know, they said, how do we know that we love you? Jesus said, you'll know you love me by you obey my commandments. 
Well, the only way that we have the power to obey the commandments of Jesus is by the faith, the transforming faith. And I'm telling you, I, again, I don't want to get too personal. and I think we should all kind of evaluate ourselves. But I'm telling you, I think that we sometimes need to just sit back and say, what's the proof of my transformation? I mean, what, where is the, where's the vitality of my life, the work of faith? What is the work of faith in my life? How do I know today that I'm, I'm not saying that you wash in and out of salvation. I'm saying that if you are in salvation, there are some proofs. That's what Paul was saying here. True biblical faith is something we say yes to, and then it has results. Does that make sense? True biblical faith is when we say, yes, I believe that, and here's how I can prove it. So here, let me, let me give you uh, a little bit of, uh, I don't want to say a test, because uh, it's not a test. <clears throat> but I do want to ask you this. If I say, and I'm, I'm just telling you this because I've kind of put myself through the same litmus test here. Do you love homeless people? Yes. I'm a Christian, aren't I? I love homeless people. Prove it. As a Christian, do you think that humans should be trafficked? No. Do you love traffic victims? Yes. Prove it. I'm pro-life. Christians are pro-life. You can proclaim all day long. Proclamation after proclamation after proclamation, meaningless. Do you think people should be valued? Do you think people should be loved? Do you believe in the fruit of the Spirit? Yes. Prove it. That's how you know if you really believe something. There's not a person, well, maybe, a person in here today that would say, I do not believe Jesus. You say, I believe in Jesus. I believe that he's resurrected from the dead. Do you? What evidence is there in your life? A checkbox? Or is there the work of faith that's evident? That's how you know. It's the work of faith that makes it evident. I believe in the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. When's the last time you've risked that? When have you stepped into it as a work of faith? No, we just claim it and just keep living our life. And, and, you know, that may be enough for salvation, but it ain't enough to turn the world upside down. And that's what Jesus has called us to do. James says, what good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such a, safe, a faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food, and if one of you says, go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about it, his physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it's not accompanied by action, is dead. You hear people maybe say all the time, well, I don't have time to serve. The Lord, I have family responsibilities and I have work responsibilities and I'm just constantly covered up. I, you know, and everybody needs free time. And I would say, yes, family priority, work is a priority. Free time is a priority. But so is the work of faith. In fact, the work of faith should belong in each one of those categories. You can't compartmentalize the work of faith. It's evident everywhere you go because it's transformational. 
Second characteristic that Paul sees in the church at Thessalonica is their labor of love. Now, sometimes we see faith as intellectual. We also see love as uh, emotional. Now, there are three aspects to love. There's the physical love that we can have. Greek word is eros. There's the relational love that we can have, which is phileo. And then there's the spiritual love that we can have that we get only from God. That's the word agape. That's the word that, that Paul uses here that your labor of love. And so it's, the, you know, sometimes physical love is one thing. You can, you can act passionately about that. You can act emotionally with your friendship love, your intimacy with, with someone, your uh, kindred uh, love. Uh, but, but listen, that, that commitment love is a whole nother world. That's not always easy because it requires commitment. That's the, that's the love that Paul says here. Not because you feel like it or because you know it's important, but because of Jesus Christ. That's why. And it's a, it's a labor of love. In fact, that word labor is interesting. It doesn't just mean a work. It actually means it's the kind of work that you do at the end of the day. You're physically exhausted. Your labor of love ain't going to be easy which means that you may not line up with it as a, something you're excited about. You may not be excited about working with the homeless or excited with having to listen to somebody talk about their brokenness or deal with somebody in addiction or help somebody when they're, when they're needy. You may not get excited. You may say, oh, it just drains me. You know what? Thank God for your labor of love because it comes out of God. And if you're not filling up with the love of God, then you got nothing to give. And you're complaining all the time and you're wrecked all the time and you're grumbling about all of these broken, needy people that Jesus has equipped you to save and to help and to heal. So, man, their work of faith, their labor of love and their endurance of hope. Boy, wouldn't it be great if hope just came easy too? But hope doesn't come easy. Hope, man, you have to wait for hope. So faith isn't intellectual. You know, your, your um, love isn't like emotional. And hope isn't wishful thinking. Hope is built upon looking forward to the promises that have been established by Jesus Christ. That's, that's hope. Hope in the New Testament isn't a wishful thinking. It is a certainty based upon the promises of God. And, and these are the three things that have to be evident. So faith looks back at God's faithfulness. And because of God's faithfulness, I can look forward and know that he's going to fulfill every promise that he's made. Right? So no matter what the circumstances is, no matter how, the, how hard the, the Jews are breathing down your neck, no matter how much Rome is flogging you in the streets, I have this endurance of hope because I can look backward and see the work of transforming faith in my life. Faith looks back so that hope can look forward. And so no matter what it is, listen, if you are truly trusting in the transforming power of the Holy Spirit in your life, that work of faith, no matter what the circumstances are in your life, no matter who that person is or what that issue is, you can have enduring hope. No matter what the outset looks like, no matter what the future looks like, well, you can look right through that future and you can see Jesus for all eternity. If you are not living out of the transforming of the Holy Spirit, it's really kind of hard to see that hope. 
All you can see is defeat and failure and viruses and politics and job insecurity and food insecurity and homelessness and addiction and divorce and failure and this and this and this. And that's all you begin to see. And you start walking as a Christian and you start just... But man, when we can see and we can help people see right through all of their issues because we're seeing through all of our issues, then we can shine very brightly the hope of Jesus Christ. And that's what the church at Thessalonica was doing. And so this morning, I just want to kind of focus on those three things and say, because we can look back, I want to remind you, we need to look back and we need to see that all the promises of God are yes in Jesus. He's never led his church down, not one time. And he has absolutely changed our life and transformed us. And if we're not living in the power of that transformation, we're missing opportunities every day. If we're not walking in it every day, it can't just be a decision. We make every day transformation. Transformation starts working through us. It starts changing how we speak to people. It starts changing how we can see people. We start seeing ministry everywhere we go, opportunities to build up people, opportunities to value people, opportunities to give hope to people because we can point them into the future. So faith looks back, hope looks in the future. And while we wait on the past to catch up with the future, what do we have? Labor of love. That's what gives power to the day today. It's the work of faith. The hope of eternity empowers me to love the least of these. Empowers you to love the least of these. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for uh, reminding us today of the characteristics of health in the life of a believer. And I pray that we would not feel, well, I pray that your spirit would have the freedom to do whatever is needed. And uh, I pray that we would be encouraged today. It's, I pray that we would have hope today. I pray that we would remember today before we forget before we turn our life and church into something that it's not meant to be, I pray that you would remind us today of the hope that we have. And I pray that we would endure. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Would you stand with me, please? This morning, I want us just to take, I want us just to take a moment as a church, okay? As, I know it's just a, an introduction, and, but I want us just to bow our heads for a moment. And, and I would like for us just to, just to pray where we are. And I would ask, I'd like to ask God that he, would, that he would bring to our mind the things that might be distracting us from what we already possess. Listen, there's not a person in here today that cannot possess transforming work of faith. If you're here today and you've not been transformed by the power of the Spirit, I beg you today, why don't you do that today? What could possibly hold you back from having transformation? But I also want to challenge us that we can't be guilty of just proclaiming things that we're not living out. We can't just claim to love. We have to love. We have to be where people need to be loved. And I want to challenge you to make sure that in the, the, the darkest, most grumbling days I have ever seen in my life, that the people of Jesus Christ can be filled with hope. Not just optimism, hope. 
that we can see through all of the lies of Satan straight into the hope of eternity. And that's the motivation that gives us permission to love today. So you just pray, Lord, we want to be this church so new, so fresh, and already so fractured. And yet, even in their diversity, they have the evidence of transformation, the evidence of loving even their persecutors because they were focused on their future instead of their day. So help us, Lord, to lift our eyes beyond our day. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. If you need help finding or taking your next step, send us a message at hello at myconnectchurch.cc.